0: Okay, so good afternoon and uh, welcome uh, to Hudson Institute. We are um, very happy today to be uh, hosting uh, Yonah Jeremy Bob, uh, who's here to talk about uh, his new book, Target Tehran How Israel is Using Sabotage, Cyber Warfare, Assassination, and Secret Diplomacy to Stop a Nuclear Iran and Create a New Middle East. Uh, it certainly seems uh, to be a very timely uh, uh, publication. And uh, we're delighted to, to have you here today. So Thank welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Welcome. So let's, let's start by putting, uh, putting the book in context. Is there, there have been lots of books about uh, Israel and Iran, the US and Iran, about intelligence operations, about Israeli intelligence. H- how does your book fit into this, this universe of these books? And what, what makes it different?
1: Yeah, so um, there's a couple of things that are very unique. One is, if you look at almost every Mossad CIA book, they're usually about things that happened 50 years ago, 25 years ago, nothing current, because it just doesn't get declassified. And what happened here was incredible. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Mossad director Yossi Cohen, um, also you um, at the time in the prime minister's office and some other people made a decision to declassify this operation in 2018, January 31st, 2018. Mossad steals or permanently borrows Iran's physical nuclear archives, right? This isn't Mission Impossible where they stick in, you know, a little thumb drive and they download it and they bring the thumb drive. This is the physical, you know, archives. Netanyahu at the press conference in April 2018 dramatically, you know, moves, you know, a sheet and you can see bookshelves of, you know, documents. And so basically this is all current, we, even the book goes all the way up to the beginning of 2023. Um, we have operations, a vast amount of operations to happen in 2022, and I'd say about 70% of the book is from 2018, 2020 and, and forward and more current. So that is, it just doesn't, you don't have books like that. Um, and so we're very privileged, we're very privileged to be able to get extraordinary access to top intelligence officials, government officials in Israel, in the United States, Um, to be able to talk in detail about operations and the people who ordered the operations in a way that isn't uh, normally done. Um, And then the other thing is, it's a a story also, right? So Yossi Cohen is sort of the most main character in the story, um, and there hasn't been a book to tell his story yet. He was Mossad director from 2016 to mid-2021, and it's also a story about David Barnea, um, there was a certain point in the book where we thought we might stop earlier and then David Barnea, I have to say, because I'm an Israeli journalist uh, under these really censor, according to foreign sources, um, a whole bunch of top Israeli nuclear, uh, scientific, and terror officials started to drop dead or jump off buildings and other kinds of things like that in April, June 2022. Um, there was also other progress with the Abraham Accords. So basically, you, you know, if, if you want to know who these people were, um, Yossi Cohen, David Barnea. We do go back the early chapters of the book. We also do give you a detailed accounting of the people before Cohen, Tamir Pardo, Mossad chief, twenty eleven to twenty sixteen, Mir Dagan, Mossad chief, two thousand two to twenty eleven. Um, but there have been books before about Dagan, and there really hasn't been introducing, you know, Cohen and Barnea to the general public. What makes them tick? Who are they? You know, as people, why did they make some of the decisions that they did? Um, so those are at least two things where this book is uh, very unique.
0: Interesting, fascinating, and and what what drew you to this subject?
1: Um, look, I loved spy stories from a young age. I was you know watched I think almost every or every James Bond movie, um, and uh, you know Tom Clancy. I read you know certainly all of his books. Uh, that came out up until I think I went to law school. When I went to law school, I started, stopped reading almost anything other than whatever I was studying in law school. This is before I became a journalist. Um, and so I loved you know, the covert world from a young age. Um, when I got to the Jerusalem Post, it was after I had spent some time in the Israeli military and the militarily legal division dealing sometimes with operational issues. So I had already some contact with the Israeli intelligence world in that capacity. Um, And then I was initially writing on legal issues. But after uh, the first three or four years, I took over the intelligence uh, side of things. And so for, I think, almost a decade now, I've been covering intelligence issues. Um, And it's fascinating getting to meet the people, um, fascinating hearing their stories. Um you know i mean the stories are incredible, and then you, you meet meet the people who you, you know who do them and you do learn a whole nother uh, dimension so
0: so what- what you're saying um about the, the the book is that it's basically the decision of the of the prime minister to reveal the archive to the world is part of what makes your book possible today
1: absolutely yeah so if uh I don't, I, this book probably would not have existed if Netanyahu hadn't decided to reveal the archive operation to the world, and not just reveal it, but with details. There were briefings and more briefings and more and all kinds of leaks, um, and so that made it more possible to talk to some of the people in the intelligence and defense community and for them to also be freer with what they could say and to be able to ask more in-depth questions because we knew more about this operation than we ever know about operations that happen in real time. And then once you do that, you're able to develop relationships. And once you develop relationships and trust, then you're able to talk about other things. I have, I have a, a note on sources in the back of the book um, where I address certain things about the sources. I can't talk about when I spoke to you know, certain people uh, you know, in terms of protecting journalistic ethics. But let's say that yes, the the operation in 2018 made it possible to uh, get through to certain people, and I certainly can say, as I say in the known sources, I had you know a lot extensive uh, contact with Yossi Cohen. I can't say when, um, and um, I definitely you know interviewed uh, Tamir Pardo, my co-author Ilan Avdattar, had interviewed Mayor Dagan, um, and I can't say who of current Mossad people, but I. Did also have contact with current Mossad people, um, so uh, but yes, all of that would not have been possible if Netanyahu had not disclosed the 2018 operation.
0: Okay, so let's let's look for a moment. Aside from you know, obviously the, the 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 revelation of the of the archive and uh, and and how it was acquired are of course sensational stories, but let's. But let's talk about the the, the nuts and bolts, with the, the nitty gritty of it, and the influence on policy, which is ultimately what um, what I think is most important here. So, do you see the 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 taking and the exposing of the archive as having had an, uh, a significant impact on policy? A and B, um, you know, having looked at this um, from all these different angles, you know what. Um, what have you concluded uh, about the current direction of, uh, of policy on Iran, both, I guess, from the US standpoint and from the Israeli standpoint?
1: It's like four questions in yeah, one. Yeah, so I'm going to hit some of those. And if I forget some of them, you can follow up. Okay. Um, OK, so in terms of the impact, and uh, look, from, from the publisher Simon & Schuster's perspective, you know, I think the most important thing was the, you know, the exciting operations and the writing. But they totally were on board with getting into some policy. There's some serious policy in this book. Um, the operation absolutely paved the way for the Trump administration, for Donald Trump, who was president at the time, to pull out of the JCPOA. Um, would he have done it anyway? Maybe. Uh, he certainly had been talking about pulling out of the JCPOA even when he was a candidate and his whole time as president. But we're up to May 2018. He's been president for 15 months, and he hasn't pulled out. And he's um, you know, made public statements about you know my advisors are making me or whatever it is. But the fact is, over and over again, every few months, he has to sign a statement or not pull out, and he hasn't pulled out. So this, this is – and he, he makes a speech right after – um, Netanyahu's speech, where he says, this is the evidence. This is what I needed to hear. Um, so I would say that we don't know for sure whether he would have pulled out, and this made it clear that he could pull out and you know, had an evidentiary basis uh, to do so. I would say maybe more important, especially now that Trump hasn't been president for a few years, um, is the impact on the IAEA, right? the International Nuclear Inspectors, that up until that point in time, and it continues um, um, as long as the IAEA isn't under the same administration. But by the time you get to the end of 2019, when Raphael Grossi takes over and he sees what the Mossad has given over to the IAEA, and the IAEA issues all kinds of statements. Oh, it's based, we have you know, third-party checks, and we double-check this, and we have other sources, but like none of this happens without the Mossad giving them tremendous amounts of original evidence of Iran's, you know, cheating and hiding things and doing all kinds of very clearly only military applications for a nuclear program that couldn't possibly be civilian. And that changes the way the IAEA deals with them. And so you get, you know, in June 2020, the IAEA does its first condemnation of um, Iran, I believe, in like eight years. Um, And there's later condemnations and there's pressure and Rafael Grossi at certain points says they you know, blindsided us um, and you know that the JCPOA could f- face a fatal blow if certain things aren't cleared up. This isn't to say that Israel sees eye to eye with the IAEA. Israel's still mad with the IAEA from time to time if they seem to be too easy or if they, they closed one of the probes. But they have actually kept a number of probes open which has infuriated Iran. There are probably points where Iran might have been ready to go back into a deal with the United States if those probes were closed. And so you can even see, even in 2023 and even into the future, as long as the IAEA keeps those probes open, which I say dates back to the Mossad operation, that operation is continuing to have an impact way past the Trump administration, past the JCPOA. The other thing I want to say is, you know, we talk about um, the future is... I would say October 2025, when the restrictions on the centrifuges, right, which enrich uranium, and shortly after that, the snapback, um, the ability to snap back global sanctions with the JCPOA, so all of those fall off. Um, it's not that far away anymore. You know, when you signed the deal in 2015, it was 10 years away, it's not that far away anymore. So we talk about that even if it doesn't look like there's a lot of negotiations right now but even if the Biden administration was to go back into the JCPOA or some sort of 2.0 by the end of 2025 basically it doesn't matter that you know Iran basically has the ability in a num- you know even if it gives away all of its stock of enriched uranium once there's no snapback and once it can have not an unlimited but a much larger number of centrifuges and advanced centrifuges the amount of time it takes it to be able to go from 0 to nuclear weapons is tiny and they can forget about breakout people talk about Iranian breakout they could sneak out so that is a built-in structural problem and we talk about it in our book Israel may, may, may need to make a decision at that point in time if Iran hasn't been rolled back significantly from where it is now whether there is a deal or not Israel may may make, may make a decision about a preemptive strike
0: uh, i asked you a big question and that was a big answer so um, where does that, um, where does that, I, I guess the question is, you have effectively, even, like you said, even if you were to go back into the JCPOA today, miraculously, um, disastrously, I would argue, um, the most you could get out of it now is effectively two years, right? right? So, so in terms of, you know, the, the, the diminishing returns of a deal now, you're, you're down to the last two years. Is it?
1: I think that's accurate. I think if, you know, when the Biden administration took over um, and, and Anthony Blinken and others said, we're going to go for a longer and stronger deal, that's dead now. There is no longer and stronger deal unless it's a, it, it basically have to be a new deal. You know, they'd have to say, you have to, uh, forget about, you know, the best case scenario where they give up their entire nuclear program. Let's say you just want to get back to what they had in 2015. They'd have to give up all of the stock. And we're talking about 20% 60% enriched uranium to 60% enriched uranium, from what I understand from the real nuclear scientists, you can get to 90% really fast. Um, so they'd have to, you know, give away the advanced centrifuges, give away all of that. And uh, you still wouldn't really be able to get back to it because the amount of knowledge that they've acquired and how to enrich the 20% and 60% they were having for years, they were... It wasn't that they hadn't tried to do they'd sometimes tried to do that and, and failed, and a lot of their machines were breaking and um, there were for years uh, they would show pictures that they said were IR6s advanced centrifuges, um, and they were something else where they weren't working and you know they sort of were playing you know a, a PR game, a spin game, but they actually are working now. they know how to work them now. so even if you take them away, they could bring them back. so uh, yeah, as, as you said it's very, it's very hard to see how. They could even, with, with, there were tons of holes in the 2015 deal, and it's very hard to see how they could get another deal that would even be back to that.
0: And it, I think one of the things that was interesting about the, um, the archive materials and the, uh, the Iranian violations that they documented, uh, and as you said, that the IAEA focused on, still focused on, is that many of those have nothing to do with the JCPOA, right? They're related to. Um, Iran's obligations under the uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation right. Treaty. And so it's, it's something that's, that's far broader than just the JCPOA. It, the, President Trump may have used it or uh, have been able to rely on it, as, as you said, the evidentiary basis for his decision, but it really has implications that go way beyond uh, just uh, just a nuclear deal. You know, in the book, you also um, spend some time talking about the Abraham Accords right. and Israel's relations. Uh, with its uh, with its neighbors, um, what, what, were, you know, what was the, the most interesting thing that you know, surprised you as uh, as you as you dug into the, uh, the the development of these relationships?
1: Right. So um, I think this, by the way, is what got us Simon and Schuster, uh, the Abraham Accords piece of, of the book, because people know that the Mossad assassinates people. They know that the Mossad spies, does a really good job you know, spying, collecting intelligence. Most people don't know that the Mossad has a peacemaking business, um, and has for, for decades and decades, um, and this elevated and escalated, especially during the time of Yossi Cohen, but we do go back and discuss the efforts also of the Mossad directors that came before him, Mayor Dagan and Tamir Pardot, but especially in Yossi Cohen's era, um, you have a major escalation and the Abraham Accords in August 2020 to December 2020, UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan all happened in Yassi Cohen's era. Now, at the end of the day, they were, you know, the final negotiations were done by Ron Dermers, the US ambassador in, in Washington, Youssef al UAE ambassador, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz on the US side. But everybody says that Yassi Cohen and the Mossad's efforts. Laid the groundwork for that. I'll give you know one example that we talk about in the book is in 2017, um, and I remember it. And it was a major wow moment for me as a journalist. Gadi Eisenkot, the IDF chief at the time, Yuval Steinitz, who was a major minister at the time, both within a matter of days, say publicly, we're sharing intelligence with the Saudis. This is the first time there've been you know, quiet things that people had heard rumors of, you know, Mossad visits to Saudi Arabia or other quiet... This is the first time that anything of that level goes public by top Israeli officials. And I can tell you now that, and we say in the book, Yossi Cohen had shortly before been in Saudi Arabia. Yossi Cohen was, you know, meeting with MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, and other top intelligence officials in Saudi Arabia. And that is what makes the Abraham Accords possible. Now, you, you need also... MBZ, Mohammed bin Zayed, the leader of the UAE, he's the one who signs the first deal. And that's crucial, and I don't want to downplay that. Um, But the fact is that all of this is being built, and none of it would happen. The UAE would not go forward. MBZ wouldn't go forward if he didn't have the blessing of MBS. Now, where is that going at this point in time? So I'll tell you a little interesting thing about writing a book that's about current events Um, sometimes, you know, you have big curveballs thrown in. So if, you know, 90% or so of the book is probably wrapped up somewhere in late 2022, the final version of the book is maybe like March or April of of this year. Right around March is when Iran signs a deal with the Saudis. And all of a sudden, 90% of the analysis is normalization with the Saudis is dead. They signed a deal with Iran, and it was, you know, China was involved. They've switched sides. It's all off. And we... You know, the publisher's like, do we have to rewrite the whole book? You know, (laughs) what do we do? And I did a deep dive uh, to my sources, and I got an unequivocal answer. Ignore it. It's not unimportant, but basically the Saudis are just playing both sides. Normalization with Israel is still going forward at that point in time. Um, And this is just the Saudis playing a clever game, um, you know, to get a higher price for normalization from Israel and the United States. Um, And that turned out to be right up until this war that started on October 7th. If you had asked me three weeks ago, I would have said very, very high chance of at least an interim deal between Israel and the Saudis no later than February of 2024. Right now, we're in the middle of the war. I cannot gain the same unequivocal answers from my sources. So I think nobody knows. And some of it will depend on the outcome of the war.
0: So that's uh, 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 I think a helpful uh, opportunity to uh, to segue to current to, to really current events, the things that are happening right now, uh, as we speak. Uh, as you said, the war began um, uh, on October seventh, um, about two and a half weeks ago now. Um, it's funny in, in advance of, of our sitting down today, and I was looking at the subtitle of your book. i was thinking about how Israel is using sabotage, cyber warfare, assassination uh, to stop a nuclear Iran, create a new Middle East. I think well. What's the Iranian version of that, right? Because they're also trying to create a new Middle East. And um, you know, where do you think, see things standing right now? And how do you see the current war and the current goings on affecting uh, both uh, the nuclear program? And again, I know I'm, I'm loading you up with questions here, um, but also the, uh, the possibility of um, more diplomacy with, between Israel and its neighbors.
1: Great questions. So the first thing I want to say is, I was in a briefing towards the beginning of 2023, we'll say with top, the highest defense officials. Um, and they said 2023 is going to be a banner year in a bad way with Iran. Um, Iran isn't just anti-Israel at this point. Ideologically, they're not just anti-Israel at this point um, in order to sort of wag the dog, you know, confuse their own people about look at this over here, you know, the bad guy Israel, so they don't focus on the fact that they actually hate their own regime because most of them don't like their own regime. Um, There's also a different level of strategic competition. Iran has realized that Israel is interrupting its ability to take over Syria and Yemen and Lebanon and Gaza, and they want to be the hegemon in the Middle East, and Israel is getting in the way. So it's like a deeper level of commitment from Iran that we need to... Iranians are saying, we need to focus on Israel, take out Israel, damage Israel, roll back Israel. Um, And you you saw that uh, these things seem small now, but there were some risks. Hezbollah did a terror bombing deep in northern Israel in uh, Megiddo Um, in uh, March of this year. um, You know, there was the May War or I guess now we'll just call it a rounder conflict in comparison between Israel and Islamic Jihad in Gaza. People have forgotten these things because they seem so minor compared to what's going on right now. Um, but so we knew already that Iran was zoned in on Israel in a different way in, uh, this year. Um, in terms of the diplomacy, um, it's, it's a problem. Um, you know, If Israel comes out and really smashes Hamas, um, and after a couple of months... Uh, people say, okay, and Israel, you know, did, you know, yes, Palestinian civilians die, but Israel tried the hardest it could to avoid that, to limit that. Um, then the truth is a lot of, you know, the Saudis and the Egyptians and the other Gulf countries don't like Hamas. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood is, 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 is a problem for them too. And Hamas is connected to the Muslim Brotherhood movement. So then you could potentially see something going forward. Will there be enough time? Before we get deep into the presidential election year. So then you'd have to see MBS, the leader of, uh, the practical leader of Saudi Arabia, being riskier than we've seen until now. It is possible that maybe this deal could have happened by February 2024. It might be pushed off longer, which, by the way, it happened. The Abraham Accords could have happened, from what I'm told, a couple of times in 2018 and 2019 if Israel hadn't had so many rounds of elections. I mean, people remember Israel had like four or five rounds of elections. A lot of the Abraham Accords countries. What I've been told, we're ready to cut the deal earlier, and they were just like, "But you have no government." Um, So I do think, again, uh, this Saudi normalization, I think, will probably happen someday, but it could be delayed. Um, And again, it does depend how the war comes out. If Hamas is seen as defeated or not defeated, um, how the Arab world views Israel, depending on how many Palestinian civilians are killed, um, and how good a case Israel makes to the world that is at least accepted by the West in terms of you know, that it did the best it could to avoid civilian deaths. And on the nuclear issue, it might be online right now. I wrote an analysis uh, this morning that I already filed for the Jerusalem Post. That's my day job, um, where I said, uh, this is a dangerous uh, position. Our our attention is distracted. And actually, at the end of the day, Hamas is not a strategic threat to Israel. They killed an incredible, uh, tragic number of people on October 7th. But that was their best shot. Um, The way I would put it is if anybody who's a basketball fan with March Madness, in one game, you could have a small team from a small town beat the big team from the big city that's all their players are going to the NBA. But if those same teams played 10 times or 100 times, the big team would win almost all the time. That's what's going to happen between Israel and Hamas. And that's what's been happening with the air power. Israel, Hamas cannot compete with Israel on, on any way. Iran can. Iran is a potential existential threat to Israel if it develops nuclear weapons. And if Israel becomes too distracted, if the world becomes too distracted from what's going on with Hamas and what's going on with Hezbollah in the north, uh, the even bigger threat of Iran, who knows what, you know, they could try to sneak out um, while all of this is going on. So you mentioned
0: Hezbollah. Do you think, and I think that's been one of the big questions surrounding this since October 7th, is does Hezbollah get involved? Um, I could make a reasoned argument why they would and I can make a reasoned argument why they wouldn't, but I'm curious to hear your take.
1: So first of all, what I'm hearing from Israeli intelligence and defense officials now is they are involved. Um, they have been fighting with Israel every single day since, um, I think it was maybe the second day of the conflict, um, unlike Hamas, where we know that Iran gave them logistics support, financial support, training. In the. Uh, they couldn't have pulled off the operation on October seventh without Iran. But people are saying Iran didn't give a specific order that day. Hezbollah was given a specific order as soon as this started: get involved and get involved deeply and provoke. Um, and so, but they haven't done their best shot. They have not exactly so right. So they have stayed short. Um, but tens of thousands of Israeli civilians have already evacuated the north, including not just little villages. Originally, they just evacuated a small village called Matula. They've evacuated Kiryat Shmona, which is a city. Um, so there are tens of thousands of Israelis who have evacuated the north. But you're right. This is still the nightmare scenario is Hezbollah. does a full conflict. They have at least 150,000 rockets and mortars. And unlike Hamas, which that's about 10 times what Hamas has, unlike Hamas, they have high-quality precision rockets. Right. So they could hit targets in Tel Aviv um, in a way that Hamas can't, there are rockets that they have they can probably avoid Iron Dome, avoid, you know, Israel has a awesome three-layer, you know, missile defense, or four-layer missile defense, depending on how you look at it, um, and Hezbollah, both in terms of quantity and quality, not that they could hit everything, but they could hit a lot more, and people were talking about, you know, if there was a conflict with Hezbollah, you know, Damage in large cities, you know, 1,000 dead civilians, maybe more. Um, so, yes, that would be much worse than it is now. Will they take that jump? My take right now is no, because they would have on the first day. But there are a lot of smart people who say they're just waiting for Israel to go into Gaza. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, you know, uh, you know, strike when Israel is fully distracted in, in Gaza. So it's, it's, it's an open question.
0: The other question I had about this is I think one of the the tensions here in the coverage, uh, I speak to you also as as a journalist here, uh, is that it's it's very easy to focus narrowly on the war as being this is Israel and Hamas's war. But this is really part of something much bigger. Um, Hezbollah is also. Part of it, but this is really—it's not even just an Iran-Israel war. It's a war between Israel, the United States, their Arab partners and allies on the one hand, and Iran and its terrorist proxies on the other. Um, is how 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 widely understood do you think that is from what you're seeing in Israel and in Washington?
1: In Israel, I think people get that. Um, in Israel. Terrorism is a part of almost daily life even before this war. People aren't necessarily paying attention all around the world. But for the last year and a half, almost 18 months, there has been repeated waves of terror from the West Bank um, against Israel, um, both in the West Bank and across the Green Line, in Tel Aviv, and all kinds of other places. So I think Israel gets the idea. And a lot of that was pushed by Hamas and Iran um, again, I mentioned there were some other incidents from Hezbollah. So I think Israelis do get the idea that they're part of a greater regional war of, you know, whatever you want to call it, the Shiite axis um, led by Iran and including Hezbollah and the Houthis in Yemen and groups in Iraq and Hamas and, um, versus Israel in the United States and whoever else from the West is interested in trying to help and the Sunnis. Um, the, or we call them the moderate uh, Sunni uh, allies um, in the United States. I don't know how many people get that. Um, I'm sure that there are people who are followers of the region um, who may get that. Um, but I think the, the American public, um, is, you know, maybe just from Biden's visit, tuned in to what's going on in Israel in the Middle East and the fight between the Sunnis and the Shiites and how barbaric Hamas was. Um, I think you know that may have, for for a moment, gotten the greater public's attention on this issue. Short of that, I, I don't. I don't think uh, they would understand it, and it's it's hard to say. Even people right now are following it, but will they still be following? You know, the work could go on for months. Will they still be following it in a month or two? How many people have sort of lost track of what's happening in Ukraine um, because it's just been going on for so long? So I would. Uh, all of that said, I think Israelis get it. Americans. And Europeans, I think in general, most of them, if they're not policy people, don't necessarily get it. They may be getting it at this moment, and I hope they'll hold on to that and not forget.
0: So, uh, you know, the president has spoken uh, directly to uh, Israelis, both through uh, statements he's made in Washington and also um, he came to visit um, last Wednesday. Um, from an American policy perspective, what do you think is the most important thing that the United States should be doing right now? And I guess, is it doing it or isn't it?
1: Um, so I'd, I'll give kudos to Biden and his general support for Israel, um, moving military assets into the region, shooting down um, some aerial threats from Yemen recently, um, sending you know, a message to Iran Hezbollah, you're thinking about getting involved, don't. Um, I give credit for all of that. There are concerns in Israel about uh, there was this hug between Biden and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, during the Biden visit. And some people started to ask after, well, was it also a bear hug? Right? In other words, yes, the United States is going to help with a whole number of things, but there's going to be strings attached. And, uh, and you're seeing that now um, with, you know, there's a bunch of reasons why the invasion has been delayed. The invasion was supposed to happen. Friday Saturday about two weeks ago um, there was a dramatic warning from Israel to the Northern Gaza get out of Northern Gaza in the next 24 hours. there was a deadline that wasn't PR. There were Israeli you know military defense officials that absolutely believed the invasion was about to happen. Um, and then the same thing basically right after Biden left. there were people who said as soon as Biden's out, it's going to happen. So is the delay, because um, Netanyahu himself, and you you, you can also share some insight on this, Um, while he is sort of the alpha male and the tough guy, the fact is that in his 15 or so years as prime minister, he hasn't wanted to use ground troops very much. Even in 2014, um, Israel invaded Gaza, but not really. Most of the troops stayed within about two kilometers of the border. There were some, you know, select groups that went deeper in, but it was not a full invasion of Gaza, the way you think of you know, people getting deep into the cities that could have actually, so to speak, cleaned house of Hamas, and that's why Hamas and Islamic Jihad were able to recover. So is it Netanyahu himself um, who's holding back? Um, some people say that the IDF, um, even though the field commanders Absolutely want to go in. They wanted to go in within the first few days. But the top echelon, um, you know, IDF chief of staff Herzl Alevi, and some of the other you know, very talented people, but they, you know, they're reeling in some ways. You know, they this happened. The horrible tragedy of 1,400 Israelis, mostly civilians, being killed happened on their watch. And so, are, you know, are they reeling? Are they, you know, not sure, feeling more uncertain, second guessing themselves more about what could happen in the invasion? Could there be ambushes? How will all that go? Um, or is it the American influence? Is, is, you know, is there pressure from the Biden administration? Certainly, the Biden administration is publicly at this point saying they want Israel to go slower and do less. Um, so is that the reason why Israel's invasion hasn't happened and has been stalled? So there's a whole bunch of reasons there, but it's certainly in the mix.
0: Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Just in the last day or so, I've seen some uh, reporting that the army is now saying that they're ready. They're just waiting to go. And, and they're, you know, they're sort of pushing this onto the um, uh, Onto the elected officials. Um, So if you had to give your best assessment of what's going to happen next, what would it be?
1: There is going to be ground invasion. There definitely will be. You don't call up 360,000 reservists and not use them. Um, And the Israeli public will demand it. And the government and every single official has said that they would do it. Um, But at this point, it seems that the ground invasion is going to be... Still, it will be the largest ground invasion Israel has done to date. It will be more than what ever happened in 2014, but it is going to be less than what people expected. Um, and the question is, in that gap of a full-ground invasion going into every single city and town in Gaza and going after, if not 100%, 80 90% of Hamas's forces— going into every single, you know, they have whatever 1,000, 1,300 tunnels, whatever it is, going into every single tunnel, house to house. Um, So if that doesn't happen, um, how far are they going to go in order to at least take out 40%, 60% of Hamas? You know, there's certain numbers that if they don't get to a certain number, it'll be thought of as a complete failure. So I think they're still going to need to go in. And then the pressure is going to be My, my concern, I personally think they should have gone in as soon as possible. Um, a top Israeli official said to me, well, the tragedy was so bad and the pictures were so bad and so heinous of you know, killing babies and raping women and, you know, and killing the elderly that we have an unlimited clock. And I said, you must be smoking something. You don't have an unlimited clock. The world doesn't give Israel an unlimited clock. It doesn't matter how many of our civilians were killed. There is no unlimited clock. And every day and week that goes by, they were only doing air barrages, and the air barrages have done a lot. But there's, there's a limit. There's a large amount of Hamas forces which cannot be taken out unless you go in with boots on the ground. Um, so I am concerned about the delay. I'm concerned about how large it will be. And I'm concerned that even if you know, Israel thinks that after three or four weeks or five weeks that it can stay in longer, that the pressure from the world and the United States may be too much and the job might not get finished as much as it could have been, should have been, if the invasion had started earlier,
0: yeah, should we take some questions from our audience? Sure. Okay. So, you uh, talk about uh, a lot of key issues related to targeting the Iranian
2: nuclear program. Um, do you, and, and you have unique access to the archives, um, did you see anything? I was in charge of. A going after North Korea's nuclear program globally back in you know 2001-2006 period and we had a North Korean nuclear reactor being built on the Euphrates at Al Kabar that Israel took out in 2007 did you find any evidence that that reactor was for the Iranians the way that we all thought at the time it was for the Iranians that they had outsourced it and in the did you find any archival evidence and then in 2012 North Korea signed a science technology agreement with Iran as part of the access of resistance. Um, any, there's a doubt or thought that that was a, a prelude to transfer of nuclear weapons. Any reflection in, in any of your research on the, those questions, that Iran actually might have nuclear weapons already?
1: OK. Um, according to my sources, and I'll call them some of the highest sources you can have, Iran does not have nuclear weapons right now. Um, it's very close in terms of enrichment a week. You know, Colin Kyle said a while ago, 12 days, it could be less than that at this point. To get to 90%, they could do it almost immediately. Um, but according to my sources, they still are having issues in the weapons group issues. If it's detonation, if it's delivery, min- miniaturization, um, they haven't figured all of those things out yet. Could my sources be wrong? Since some of the top Israeli intelligence officials for, A decade all believed that Hamas was, more than a decade, Hamas was deterred. And suddenly, they got a surprise attack from Hamas. Yeah, you can have the best team, the best you know, intelligent officials could be wrong. Um, But that's at least what I'm being told now. Um, My understanding is the 2007 reactor, um, the reactor that Israel destroyed in Syria in 2007 was for Syria, um, not for Iran. In terms of sharing technology, maybe. but um, I think there was enough going on in Iran itself um, that I think that was you know, Syria trying to do something on its own. In terms of uh, sharing technology between the North Koreans and Iran, I, I think it's widely accepted that a lot of Iran's progress um, is from all kinds of contributions, all kinds of meetings, um, even, even before 2012 and certainly after 2012, that North Korea has been a huge help to Iran and moving forward, but not to the extent of actually giving them a turnkey nuclear weapon. I know that that's a concern that I've heard you know, John Bolton and a number of other people have said. At least my sources to date have said you know, not. And I, I think given who, who and what Iran is and their agenda, I think if they had a nuclear weapon, I don't think they'd hide it. I think they'd let the world know and take the full advantage. First of all, they might even use it. And even if they wouldn't use it, they'd take the full advantage of, OK, we can do all kinds of things in the region now that we couldn't do before because anyone will be afraid of attacking us.
0: I think that that actually leads uh, uh, you know, to a Speaking of a, a technology transfer, um, You know, last week, um, sort of a, a crazy irony, the day that the president arrived in Israel was the day that the uh, UN missile embargo on Iran expired under the terms of the JCPOA. And um, there had been reporting previously that Russia, when uh, it's been widely reported and documented that uh, Russia has been using Iranian drones in Ukraine, but there had been reporting that Russia had so far uh, not gotten Iranian missiles, uh, ballistic missiles. uh, because they were waiting for this embargo to expire, and uh, sure enough, I think on the 17th already, the Russians put out a statement saying that with the expiration of the missile embargo, we are now free to exchange missile technology uh, with uh, with Iran. Does anything in in the you know the current uh, environment um, change or seem to you uh, you know you have You've had this uh, reluctance by uh, the United States and by the Europeans to, you know, to snap back sanctions, which would put the missile embargo back in place. What they've done instead is they said, oh, we're going to extend our individual sanctions, you know. um, uh, Do you see this as having any effect whatsoever? Do you see any change in European attitudes in light of what's happened?
1: I on nuclear issues, I don't expect very much in general from European countries. I was sort of a little bit happily surprised that they were at least willing to say, "Okay, we're not we're not going." You know, even though in October, uh, you know, certain sanctions on some of these weapons came off, we're going to act as if they didn't come off. But that's you know, that's not really. I think you know, you just put out a very good article about that doesn't really have teeth. If you really want to have teeth, you do the snapback. And there's still time to do the snapback. There's no way I see them doing the snapback. Um, they are terrified of what might be instead of seeing what already is. Um, and that t- tends to be you know, the European ish- you know, issue in any national security, major national security crisis you know, to kick the can down the road. Um, so unfortunately, no, I don't, I don't think every, everything that's happening right now, I don't see it changing it at all. We were just talking about North Korea. Rafael Grossi, the IAEA chief, just gave an interview about a week or so ago where he said, we are in danger of Iran becoming a North Korea. They just kicked out um, some of what I understand to be the most important inspectors about a month ago, some of the inspectors that were catching a lot of the violations. So they kicked them out. Um, And if you go back, uh, some of the IAEA's cameras and inspectors were tampered with or shut off already in early 2021. More of them were shut off in 2022. Um, that was, I was talking about a quote before where Grossi said, a fatal blow you know, to the JCPOA. That happened in 2022. Um, so you know, Grossi is supposed to be a diplomat who you know, is very measured in his wording, usually. Uh, we were talking before that when, when Iran lies about his nuclear weapon, he doesn't say they lie. He says. You know the answer that they're giving doesn't seem consistent with the facts. Um, and here he's saying, warning the world, this could become North Korea. They could develop an arsenal, not one nuclear weapon, an arsenal of nuclear weapons. Um, so unfortunately, almost nobody reported that. I mean, there were a few, there a few reports on it, but it was you know totally blocked out. There wasn't really any response. There wasn't much of a response uh, when uh, all the inspectors were kicked out. There were a couple of oh, this isn't so nice, but there was nothing, no teeth, no, nobody talking about a snapback, nobody talking about anything, any sort of military threat. Uh, so we have a real problem with, uh, with uh, Iran that everybody is still, it seems no matter what they do up until now, is still afraid of what could be instead of seeing the danger of what is.
0: I think the IAEA is, is in a real uh, jam today, because the
1: IAEA is essentially two
0: organizations in one, right? You've got the professionals, you know, who Grossi is at the head of, and then you've got the Board of Governors, which is made up of the, the, the member states. And you had mentioned how uh, a few years ago now they, they passed a, a censure of Iran. Um, but it's interesting, because today, if, uh,
1: you know, if you were to, if the IAEA were to censure Iran, And And they did another one in 2022, okay, but not not this year.
0: Not this year, Um, but even then, they stopped with that. That is, the the next step that they could take would be to refer to the Security Council. Right. What's the problem today in the in the current environment, where uh, especially with the war in Ukraine going on, if Iran is referred to the Security Council, any punitive steps will be vetoed by. By Russia or China, which so you have a situation where here you have Grossi. He's you know he's he's waving the red flag. He's got all the lights on. He's saying you know you've got this problem. You're on you're you're on a path to be like North Korea, um, but the, the the diplomatic options are actually shrinking because nobody's willing to do anything or nobody can do anything. So I think the the, the situation that's that's come out of this is that one of two outcomes has have become much more likely: either a nuclear armed Iran. Or the use of force to prevent it, or I guess both. But um, but these things, you know, seem to me becoming, you know, in the effort to avoid the use of force, they're making the the necessity for the use of force actually more likely.
1: Right. Now, that's a good point. Um, and we'll come back to the snapback. One of the beauties of the snapback is it can't be vetoed. Right. Um, it doesn't matter if Russia and China say no; it can be done done anyway. Um, and I think, I think that is, if you don't want to use military force, that is the only other real tool. Um, and you could, you know, if, if you don't want to box yourself in, you could say you have 90 days before we invoke it, or 60 days. You can make an ultimatum and you can make it a long one instead of, you know, 48 hours. You can make it a long ultimatum, and that gives an opportunity to negotiate. But if nobody's even threatening to use the snapback, it's meaningless. All, all of the, the, right, the, the IAEA condemnations, in 2020, by the way, it was very meaningful because it shifted the ground so that you know you saw within days, we talk about in one of the chapters, within days of the IAEA condemnation, Iranian uh, nuclear facilities start blowing up all over the place. Um, so there was that, you know, that changed the, you know, I don't know how Iran had the moral high ground, but somehow they sort of had some sort of moral high ground. And once the IAEA condemned them, it paved the way for the Mossad, according to foreign sources. Um, to uh, you know, eliminate all kinds of uh, aspects of Iran's uh, nuclear program, but short of the Mossad acting, short of the Israeli Air Force doing a major preemptive strike, the only thing uh, you know, and sort of the United States acting, which, frankly, whether it's Trump or Biden or Obama or whoever is next, I don't think the United States is going to take military action against Iran. Unfortunately, it'd be much better for Israel if it would. Um, so then, it's the, it's the snapback, and it seems like nobody wants to use the snapback. They're worried, I guess, that if the snapback doesn't work out, then you know suddenly that would require them to actually use you know military force.
0: And and as you said, the snapback itself expires in two years, yeah. and then it, then that's not even an option.
1: Right. So like you and then so like like you said, and then it makes military force becomes closer to being the only option, or covert force, or military force, but. Right now, there is room for diplomacy. There are tools for diplomacy. And uh, you're right, as time goes on, it's being, you know, they're blowing those tools.
0: Other questions? Uh,
2: Yes. I learned a ton. Um, really appreciate it. So I really like your analogy um, about the March Madness, the smaller team, you know, upsetting the bigger team once, but if they were to play, you know, ten, twenty times, the bigger team would win a majority of the
1: times. Um, so with the initial uh, invasions, do you think that's more on the side of like a lapse of Israeli intelligence or strategic planning on the Hamas side of things, or you know, a combination of the two? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I, it is the mix of the two. Um, I wrote a long, uh, I think, like 1,500-word article about this. I'm just going to try to remember the main points of it. Um, on the strategic level, there's two main points. Um, one is just hubris. Israel knew correctly that it was so much more powerful, so much more technologically advanced than Hamas, and so it just stopped taking Hamas seriously. And any time you stop taking an adversary seriously, no matter how superior you are, you give them the opportunity to surprise you because you're not working hard enough. You're not focused. Um, Empirically, Hamas did a good job luring Israel to sleep. In fairness to Israel, um, not everybody knows, but there were since the last time Hamas fought with Israel was May 2021. And after that, there were about half a dozen rounds between Israel and Gaza just between Islamic shihad in Gaza and Israel, and Hamas stayed out of all of them. And so the most logical conclusion from that would be Hamas is deterred. If they weren't deterred, they'd get in. They're taking a hit with their own public. They're looking like they're you know too wishy-washy, too cowardly to fight. Look at Islamic Jihad. They're the tough guys in Gaza now. And so that was the logical conclusion. The problem is, if you're in charge of national security, you can't just plan for what's the most logical conclusion. You also have to plan for what is the 10% possibility, the nightmare scenarios. And I think they s- stopped doing that to some extent, or they didn't do that carefully enough. That's the, the, the strategic failures. The tactical failures, you have to take your hat off a little bit to Hamas. Um, they fired more rockets in a couple of hours than they'd ever fired on Israel before, about 2,000 all at once. And so Israel's thinking, we're under attack by a crazy amount of rockets, oh my god. What are we going to do about that? At the same time, you have about 30 or so you know, suicide drones that go into Israeli uh, sensors, into Israeli guard towers. We knew about the drones, but we didn't expect them to use so many at once and not while the rockets are happening. At the same time, this is, I want to say my favorite, but I tip my hat the most, motorized hang gliders Nobody was talking about motorized hang gliders. Try to look, you know, Google motorized hang glider in Hamas or Gaza. You'll find, like, maybe one or two articles about it. nobody. And those come out. as a retro technology, and they're, like, manually dropping bombs on Israel's uh, lookout points. And so basically between all of that, they take out, you know, basically most of Israel's ability to know what's going on on the front. In headquarters, they don't even realize that they're losing the ability because they're still focused on the rockets. And then right around the same time, Hamas invades two major crossings with the largest amount of number of people that they've done before. So then Israel's thinking about the crossings. And right around the same time, Hamas invades at something like 29 other points. And then Israel doesn't know, wait, how could they be here? And how could they be there at the same time? Basically, complete chaos. And the only way it got turned around was really less from central headquarters you just had individual people contacting individual people and saying, "Come and help us." Groups just started to go south of Israeli you know forces, and they just started to fight with whoever they found along the way and that's how they turned the tide. Eventually enough people came south, um, not always with a big you know order from from above that they were able to to, to turn the tide. It was not you know this wonderfully planned counter offensive um, and I think if they had sort of stuck with that and they did need a certain amount of time to call up reserves, get everybody the right number of supplies. But if they'd stuck with that momentum, uh, they could have, again, they could have started the invasion Thursday, Friday, maybe Saturday of the first week. Hamas was reeling. Um, we're talking about they lost, you know, something like 1,500 of their fighters, you know, bodies that have been gathered in Israel. Um, the Air Force was already pummeling them in Gaza. So I think that would have been, you know, a great opportunity to go in and start. We'll see, uh, we'll see what comes next.
0: You know, I think uh, in part because of the timing of this, this assault came 50 years and a day after the start of the Yom Kippur War. Um, and there's been uh, a lot of talk about, you know, the intelligence failures leading up to that war. And, you know, every year around Yom Kippur, Israelis talk about uh, the Yom Kippur War, this year especially. Um, how apt are, are some of these analogies that are being drawn? And do you what do you see happening? You know, already a month after the ceasefire in nineteen seventy three, you have the, the the standing up of the Agronaut Commission, um, which um, which led to the dismissal of uh, of some you know very senior officers in the IDF, and then it was only uh, five months after that that uh, uh, the government fell. Um, so, how do you, see, do you see the, um, what do you see coming next, I guess, not just in terms of the fighting, but in terms of the, 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 the lessons learned and the drawing of conclusions?
1: So we know a good number of these. The IDF chief, Herzl-Levy, has said, I take responsibility. It was pretty much understood as he's going to stay during the war, but once the war is mostly wrapped up, he's going to resign. Um, Same thing with the Shin Bet chief, Ronan Barr, said I take responsibility. Same thing with the IDF military chief, uh, Aaron Khaliva. Interesting question of Defense Minister Yoav Galant, because he sort of said he, he has responsibility, but it wasn't quite as unequivocal as the rest, but most of those, I think, are going to resign, and that is going to create pressure on the one big person who is definitely Responsible for Israel's security, security, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has not said anything about it. There's a whole debate. You know, is it the right time to say something in the middle of the war? It could distract things. Um, But um, I think there's going to be immense pressure on him to resign. And the only reason why maybe he might not is in Israel. um, You know, the public gets to elect the government, but then. If the people who are in government, the cabinet ministers, don't want to quit and lose their cabinet ministries, then the government doesn't fall. So if his partners and the other people in the Likud want to stay in power, and he wants to stay in power, then he might be able to stay in power. If I was going to bet right now, I'd say more likely than not, at some point, he will need to step down. But Netanyahu has surprised and defied all kinds of expectations quite a number of times. So I'm, I'm not going to bet.
0: Oh, on that, uh, on that note, um, you know, Jeremy, Bob, thank you for uh, for being here today and for sharing us your uh, your insights and for telling us about uh, some of the process behind uh, uh, this interesting book. Um, and uh, thank you for joining us at the Hudson Institute.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.